years, I've accumulated more than a few combination locks. In fact, I keep a bag of them. Why? They're in great condition, except I forgot their original combinations. Then, a few years ago, I discovered a website that steps you through the process of hacking combination locks. It's actually pretty easy. Just pull up on the hasp, then turn the wheel until you feel a slight tension. When you feel that, write down the number. There should be a dozen or so hits on any given lock as you go around the dial. Now look at the numbers. Any numbers that fall between two numbers, like 10 and a half, 15 and a half, you can discard those. The remaining whole numbers will then lead you toward the final combination. There's obviously more to it, but you get the general idea. And maybe on some rainy Sunday afternoon, you can puzzle out those long lost combinations and reclaim a few combination locks for yourself. In this episode, I'm talking to someone who goes way beyond hacking your basic drugstore combination lock. I'm talking about hacking locks that protect assets potentially as great as the White House. You'd think some higher-end locks would be necessarily impossible to crack. I mean, consider the assets they're protecting on the other side. My guest makes picking locks, at least after he explains it, easy. And this understanding into the mechanics starts to explain why lock-picking challenges have become a part of the hacker culture today. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to go behind the scenes on the lockpicking culture within hacking, introducing you to someone who works as a physical pen tester and has helped to create the lockpicking villages that you see at most of the major hacking conferences today. So lockpicking has always been a huge part of the hacker world and the community, both as a hobby interest and also now uh, increasingly as with faces like mine as a professional endeavor. This is Deviant Olaf, one of the names often associated with modern lockpicking. I first interviewed him a few years ago at Black Hat for my book, When Gadgets Betray Us. Recently, I asked him why lockpicking remains so appealing within the hacker culture. I think it's so appealing because anyone at literally any level of technical prowess can gain something out of it immediately. If someone is already very skilled, well, they can start lockpicking if they've never tried it, and their brain will find new and in, in kind of fun ways of thinking about problems, and that appeals to them. If someone's already understand it, oh, I understand how locks work. There's always new kinds of, there's always new problems and new challenges that are always out there, but nothing really in the purely mechanical space is ever out of one's grasp entirely. One of the oldest and most crowded independent villages at DEF CON is the lockpicking village. I remember walking into that village years ago and finding table after table of locks and picks with friendly volunteers to assist anyone who had questions. Literally, each lock came with its own tutorial. I have to admit, it's addictive. So locks at DEF CON and locks at, at any hacker conference, they've been around, right? They've been on somebody's table at lunch or in a hallway. So these informal sessions were always part of the hacker culture. But it was really a fellow named Kai and his friend Doc and some other people from Colorado 
uh, in the 719 area code, they they were the first that anyone really remembers in those early single digit days of DEF CON to start challenges and workshop tables. Still very informal, um, but it was that was the beginnings of, hey, come over here and why don't you try this? So when they saw my presentation years ago uh, about locks and lock picking at DEF CON, that's when they approached me and DEF CON leadership approached me and said, hey, do you want to be a part of this? Do you want to stand up some of you? You know, you had that you had a table in the hallway after your talk that was as big as anything other people set up usually all weekend. Do you want to do that next year? And that was sort of the inception of what I what I called the lockpick village at DEF CON. DEF CON wasn't the first conference to host lockpicking. As we're about to hear, the Dutch were way ahead of other countries in providing lockpicking as a sport for hackers. Uh, the Dutch had sometimes been doing what they called a village tent at uh, Dutch events at a big campground. But yeah, the idea of uh, the mantra of the lockpick village, I called it three words, learn, touch, do. Uh, it is a one-stop shop, the lockpick village and many other teaching villages that have grown out of that tradition. Now, gosh, there must be 20 or more villages at DEF CON. If you want to learn radio, if you want to learn tampering with seals, if you want to learn encryption, if you want to learn, you name it. There was a cannabis village recently at DEF CON, but uh, all one-stop shop. You can learn about a topic with someone instructing you. You can immediately go hands-on and immediately get that, wow, I can do this feedback moment that encourages people to keep on learning and developing that skill. And it's not just DEF CON. Lockpicking is a part of most legitimate hacker conferences today. That's largely because of something called the Open Organization of Lockpickers, or TOOL with three O's. They're an international organization that provides membership for those wanting to pick locks for sport, and they also provide the general public with a lot of free resources online. Many of those resources were created by Deviant. I was there right at the earliest days, although I was not one of the original board members when Tool was spun up in the United States. So Tool, the with three O's, the Open Organization of Lock Pickers, was originally a Dutch organization, uh, still exists to this day in the Netherlands. And there are chapters all around the world. There are chapters in the United Kingdom later. There are people who've contacted us from Canada and other countries. But the largest presence, in addition to the Dutch chapter, is the American organization, Tool US. Initially, many of us all were exposed to Tool through some of the Dutch hackers who were mainstays at American hacker conferences right around 2000. That was the first time that lockpicking made the leap from the silver screen to the tabletop in front of us at hacker events many times. So when the Dutch tool chapters, especially Body Wells, who's a name that comes up a great deal, when he and his associates sort of gave their blessing to people in America to start tool in the US, I'm friends with that whole group and uh, Barry met me at the same time, but the initial board members were a couple gentlemen named Eric, one guy named Skyler, and one guy named Bobic. Uh, Skyler uh, left early on. He was still very close to the Locksport community, but he left the board and I was voted onto the board in those early days, but I was not one of the original founders. I have been very proud to keep it going for many years. I am still on the board. I am one of the only board members remaining from that era, but we have no shortage of interest and great support and volunteer staff. So Tool will be around uh, long after I'm gone. Lockpicking, then, is about the immediate gratification. It's either open or it's still locked. Within InfoSec, there are so many challenges that are intangible, like configuring a network or firewall. 
This is something concrete that you can literally hold in your hand. It's not like if you are a cryptographer and you understand basic code and then someone shows you something that no one's ever done before. You might say, wow, that new generation, those they're really going new places. I could never do that. Or at the very least, a large time investment is needed to kind of get your foot. And you might say, I don't, I don't have time for that right now. As a human, we're basically hardwired for the physical world. So we're naturally more drawn to the basic tactile experience rather than the cerebral. With lockpicking, fundamentally, humans are, you know, dexterous creatures. We can understand mechanical bits pushing themselves together in certain ways. And even newer or more complicated locks with a quick explainer, they're usually accessible. And the real fun part is for the non-technical crowd, right? If you either are a new face in the hacker community, or if you're an old head, but you're bringing someone new in, a lot of times they'll make a beeline right for the lockpick village. As they'll say, all this stuff is a big, bright world. You're going to get to it. But right now, I want to put something in your hands that will have immediate impact and reward. Just like anybody training somebody to work out. You don't want to give them the hardest exercise or the heaviest weights that'll discourage them. You want to give them something that's immediately achievable and they can build off of that feeling of success. And lockpicking is that for many, many hackers. So right away, there are many questions. Culturally, we know that breaking and entering is illegal, yet it is not illegal to pick a lock that you own or otherwise have permission to use. And as Deviant explains, there can be some legitimate reasons why I could use my lockpicking skills in the real world. Um, to kind of make an analogy to someone studying martial arts, you know, you, you should never go punch someone in the face without their permission, right? But that doesn't mean that strictly engaging in street combat in a crisis is the only use of that martial skill. Doing it simply for the prospect of, I enjoy it, I enjoy self better, I enjoy the challenge. That's a type of healthy, quiet enjoyment, and that's perfectly valid. So doing it as a way of solving puzzles is one type of, in my opinion, practical use of lockpicking. Martial arts, I could argue, is good for physical fitness. Lockpicking, then, I could argue, is good for mental fitness. A lock is, after all, a challenging mechanical puzzle. Maybe a lot of people have the question, and you might be thinking of applied. How can I really apply this knowledge? And frankly, while you shouldn't pick locks you don't own, there are many people I know in this world who picks locks they do own, not for fun, but because they were stuck. Uh, you know, you you're, you go to your vacation home or your cabin and you realize, oh, the key was on the other key ring. And do I want to drive all the way back into town? Well, hang on. Let me see. I've got my picks on me. Or if you're with a friend or associate and they say, oh, my goodness, this locker lock has just stopped working on me. I don't know. It's the same locker I've used at this gym for the past five years. You say, well, you do mind if I give it a shot? And then you could try to manipulate it open or shim it open. And they go, oh, thanks, buddy. So there are plenty of times having a skill like that is, is applicable, even in a practical sense in the real world. Okay. Accepting that you have permission to pick your own locks, that you are doing so for mental fitness, and the idea of at least knowing the fundamentals of picking locks can have practical application within the real world. Where should I begin my lock picking journey? What's a good entry level lock? For me to pick those sort of general hardware store sub ten dollar products that are on many shelves uh of course master lock is a name that's well known in the market and they, they make plenty of appearances at our teaching tables not because they're inherently a bad company uh they they simply serve all segments of the market 
Masterlock makes some commercial and higher end products, but the real major penetration in the dollar store, Harbor Freight, Home Depot market comes from anybody who's going to charge five to 10 bucks. And there's no shortage of products that are great beginning products at that level. Many of them don't have any brand name on them because they're just complete no name generics, but they all mechanically behave the way we are expecting. So you probably have noticed that combo locks with a dial appear to be different from key locks with a keyhole. Don't be concerned. They're really not different, at least not deep down. Locks are just objects designed to check some sort of token that an ostensibly authorized user is possessing. And whether that token is a piece of knowledge like a combination or a physical token like a key, the lock is, is just verifying that. And if you can find a way around it, find a way to do it without the proper token, uh, again, even someone who's not a security practitioner instantly grocks the, the realization of what that kind of impact is. This is one of those moments when, as a podcaster, I'll admit it's probably easier if I just throw up a graphic and explain some of the mechanics behind the locks. In some cases, there are pins. And what you're trying to do is to get them to set in a particular way while... Okay, so Devian is better at explaining all this. What's happening in a lock is that you have small elements which, when not pressed into the correct position, cause larger pieces to not be able to move. Anyone can think of a door, and we're not even, not even a door with a lock in it, just a door like you might have in your closet. Well, the door is very large. But the tiny plunger that sticks out in the door latch mechanism, if that one plunger is not moved to the correct position, that tiny piece is arresting the motion of the whole large door. Inside of a lock is no different. Locks have very tiny pins conventionally, and those very small pins, even though they don't move very far, they have to be moved into the right position for the larger mechanism, the release mechanism of the lock to actually operate. We're reaching in into a spot normally you couldn't reach with your fingers and moving those pins in a way normally the manufacturer wouldn't want them moved without the proper key. Once you understand the basic concept of what's going on inside the lock, then it's easier to understand how you might go about picking that lock. And you start to understand how the specific actions that you take, the tools that you use, can influence your goal in opening the lock. When you show somebody that and you show someone some educational diagrams or animations, especially that gives them a view from the inside they couldn't normally see, it all starts to click, so to speak, in their mind. And they say, oh, I see what's happening here. And if I push on it this direction, well, those forces are causing this. And then if I move this piece of wiggle at this way, oh, it's open. And that real, that, that impact moment, uh, nothing digital in my mind can really compare, even when you... Uh, exploit a system and gain root access, or if you decode a cipher, it's all just data on a screen. Um, tangible reaction, popping the shackle out of the block body or turning the deadbolt and the door is unlocked. That's something that it harkens back to physical objects. We've been picking up blocks since we were little kids and moving things around. So anything tangible as an instant reaction, it's just great. You can get people started right away. And staying with the topic of visuals for a moment, there are countless misrepresentations of lockpicking in the media, in the movies in particular. You know, the hero pulls out a paperclip and jiggles it within the keyhole, and a few seconds later, presto, the door is now unlocked. Yeah, that's only half right. 
you actually need actions of more than one tool to get it right. Yes, uh, the minimum generally is two. Uh, oftentimes, those of us exposed to lockpicking and, and fiction on the screen, uh, they, they kind of forget that part. Because a lockpick is a you know a classic idea. It's very characteristically cool looking. It's got all these bits and bobs and sometimes a fancy handle. Prop departments love lockpicks. Uh, prop departments do not always remember to include the very boring, basic looking thing known as a turning tool. Uh, it's another implement, usually just a flat bent piece of metal a strip of you know, metal stock, but that tool is imparting some rotational turning force conventionally, while the lockpick is doing the cool looking job of moving about those inner components. Uh, when you think of operating a lock the right way, the official way with a key, you are pushing those pins into position with the key, then turning the plug. Uh, with lockpicking, you're using manipulation tools to do that in the opposite order. You try to turn the plug, and then you go in and start manipulating those pins. Okay, sometimes Hollywood does get it right. For example, in the film Midnight Run, Robert De Niro's character actually uses the turning tool along with a kind of rake tool. One time he's successful, another time not so successful. So Hollywood, when it wants to, can get this right. In the real world, a lock picker would have more than one tool. Uh, in the world of, let's say, edged tools, edged cutting tools, Many people will group, uh, if you're in a kitchen looking at an assorted set of chef's knives, you might think of there's serrated blades and then there's straight edge blades, one for sort of sawing and the other for precision slicing. Um, in that sense, how most wide arrays of tools can group into larger categories, most lock picks can be grouped broadly into two categories, tools that are used for precise, sometimes called single pin or one pin at a time manipulation, single pin picking, or tools that lend themselves much more to something like raking or scrubbing, where you're attacking all the pins almost simultaneously in a very frenzied manner. And both techniques have their place. Uh, that's not to say that some tools can't do a little bit of each. Uh, some people have heard of the diamond shape pick, uh, a lock pick that is a little diamond head that can kind of do each. You can kind of scrub or rake with it. You can kind of single pin pick with it. But as, as people's collections of equipment get larger and larger, you'll see more and more intricate tools designed to enhance this type of raking or that type of pin picking. What's happening inside the lock is not, if you think about it, very complicated. Really, it's not. The jagged edge of the key moves the pins into their open positions while you simultaneously turn that key. The tools the pen tester carries, then, are trying to recreate that process. One of the tools is used to set the pins in the open position, and often the pins have to be set one at a time. Hence, you can jiggle and bump the pins into their open positions. Meanwhile, the turn tool recreates the physical way in which the key would open the lock. So when someone first sees a, a large lockpick like a rake, they say, oh, so is this just taking the place of a key? It just pushes all the pins right at once. Uh, that's not exactly what happens. Many times the analogy we like to use when manipulating a lock, it's almost like if you were looking at a kind of a slot machine and the slot machine, all the wheels are spinning and you're hoping for that big payout jackpot. But what if you could hold or lock some of the wheels into desirable positions. 
if you do one round of the slot machine and you get a couple of cherries and you say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to click, I'm going to lock those cherries. Let's spin the other wheels and see what we get. That would be of course, a lot easier to get yourself that big payday. Well, lock picking works the same way. You are Yes, manipulating all the different pins as you go through the lock, but if some of them land into the right desirable position and you learn what that is, you learn how to feel it by getting the feedback from the lock. It's actually um, auditory and tactile feedback. You can say, oh, good. I think this pin, I think I've got it in the right position. Let's not disturb that any further. Let's keep applying just some gentle turning force to the lock and it'll hold that pin. That's called setting a pin. So you can get a pin set into the right position and you work on another pin and then another pin. And if you're doing it gracefully enough and with enough finesse and care, it's just like that slot machine, that, that, that roulette machine, that's a slot machine that you can kind of lock the certain wheels where you want them and get a, kind of get an edge on the house. Now that we've mastered or at least understand the locks that use pins, there are other kinds of locks. There are other systems and other ways to keep a lock from opening. They're often layered on top of this basic understanding that we now have about the way in which locks work. Wafer systems, uh, rotating discs, or sometimes called disc detainer locks. There are sometimes that there are locks that use pins, but the pins are in different orientations. To uh, they might be transverse to the keyway. There are locks that use what are called sliders, which are typically that's a term used for un, non-spring biased elements that are just floating elements, so they don't give you as much feedback. But in all cases, we are dealing with that same analogy of a small piece that needs to be in the right position to allow a much larger piece bearing on it to slide into its correct position. Moving small things can eventually, if done right, have implications for moving a much larger thing that is attached to them. In fact, more secure locks are just combinations of pins and cylinders layered in various ways. I can even send you a photo of the locks from the White House. Uh, they, they happen to use Medico locks, uh, which is a very popular lock in the government space. Medico is a company that is an example of many types of high security firms where what you start to do is make those little interacting movements, adding another order of remove. This is important. With these expensive and more secure locks, what we're doing is increasing the layers of challenges involved, the various layers of remove. So there's not just one set of pins or even one mechanism, there are multiple. You not only have to get one right, you have to get all the others right as well. The idea, as in any security defense, is to sufficiently frustrate an attacker so he or she will simply go somewhere else. If I have a truck and I can drive my truck forward and back down the road, that's pretty easy to do. Well, if I hitch a trailer to the back of my truck, let's say I need to haul some firewood, I can drive it forward down the road pretty easily, but I have to use some real caution if I start backing up because I have to, oh, well, now it's, now it's kind of reversed. And if I turn left, the trailer goes right. But I can still do it. I'm cautious. Let's say I chain a third you know, unit on. So now it's two trailers. Doing it the right way, going forward down the road works fine. If I want to back up, that becomes really hard because I now have to care not about just the one piece I'm pushing on, but how that piece pushes on the next piece behind it. And as you can see, adding more orders of remove to the piece you're actually trying to get manipulated becomes very hard if you're not doing it in the conventional expected manner. 
If I were to design a very sophisticated and therefore very secure lock, I'd just pile on various elements. That's what the heavy-duty locks actually do. Medico is an example of that because if you're pushing on pins, well, those pins aren't what hold the lock shut. Those pins really interact with another element. That's called a sidebar in a Medico system. Many locks have sidebars. And it's the sidebar holding the lock shut. I've even seen locks where there's the conventional pins and then there's side pins. And then the side pins interact with a sidebar, which is holding the lock shut. Knowing that there are different levels of secure locks, from the inexpensive ones up to the very expensive ones, what does Deviant recommend? Everything ultimately comes down to uh, the economic value involved in the equation. Locks exist because in an imperfect world, uh, we are ultimately just trying to protect assets. And the value of the asset often dictates the value that someone might be willing to spend in terms of time and effort and material and money in attacking to get to that asset. So for your average home user, I think it's a really neat thing to see the development of locks and security devices, deadbolts and padlocks that are available on the market today far exceed what you would have seen in a store or a shop 100 years ago. It's a classic walls and ladder security scenario. I build a high wall to protect my assets, my castle, my village. Now the adversary builds a taller ladder. So I build a taller wall and so forth and so on. There will always be that sufficiently resourced, persistent attacker who can, with enough time and enough money, defeat most security systems in place today. Knowing there's this constant level of escalation, we need to keep thinking of security in terms of layers, defense in depth. At the outermost edge, you want to induce some friction to the attacker. So use basic locks, locks that can be defeated, say, within five minutes. At the next level, you want to introduce more friction. So you want what are known as contractor-grade locks that you buy at hardware stores that are designed to defeat high-grade bumping attacks. At the next level, then, you'll want to introduce the most friction, and for that, you'll need high-security locks, which have additional mechanisms designed to thwart would-be attackers. And finally, there are so-called unbeatable locks without known attack vectors or bypass weaknesses. These locks are typically only available from the vendor directly. So really, you can find a lock that's right for your needs. The question remains, is the asset you're protecting worth these additional sums of money involved? For the average home user, because again, economies of scale and value engineering, the average price of even a nice high quality padlock makes them much more achievable now than they would have been 100 years ago. So for your average home user, sure, your security has actually gone up a great deal. But for something like a bank or a museum or a government installation where uh, foreign governments and adversaries' budgets have kept pace with the growth of technology, we are always going to see that ladders and walls game continuing at the highest levels of security, which is why ultimately no single lock, no single device or solution should ever be the totality of a high security facility's posture. Uh, we talk about security in layers. We talk about how some elements of your security might deter or delay an attacker, but other elements of your security are there just so that you can detect an attack is in progress.
When he's not evangelizing lockpicking, Deviant's a very busy man. He runs several companies, but all with a common theme. He's trying to secure businesses, and often that means he's out in the field performing physical pen tests. One is called the core group. I've had that the longest. Uh, my friend Bobic actually, who shows up in much of my material and very, very, very linked to the tool world. He was a tool board of directors member for years and years and years. Uh, he had founded that company shortly before moving to the Philadelphia area where I was at the time. He had moved out so that we could work together and away it went. And much more recently, uh, we've been doing a lot of consulting and training as well. The training arm uh, became so popular that it, you know, it almost would overtake some of our consulting work. Uh, not to mention that we would sometimes get requests for types of training that we knew the material, but we really want to put our best foot forward at all times. So to be a, really a subject matter expert, we had some uh, very close connections with another firm called Red Mesa things in the surveillance space, the RF spectrum. And by bringing Red Mesa and CORE together, Red Team Alliance is a training and certification division that is a kind of a joint venture of those two firms. So far, we've focused mainly on traditional lock picking. There's also another category of lock picking that's called bypass. Rather than trying to pick the lock directly, bypass is where you simply defeat the security system itself. One way to bypass is to use a shim. For example, a quick way to pop open a combination lock is not to divine its actual combination, but to create a thin wedge of metal in a V-shape that you slide down the shaft so the lock is forced open. In most lock picking talks, you're shown how a common beer can can be quickly cut open, laid flat, and used to create a shim that can defeat the mechanism holding a lock closed. I could do that with each of my combination locks, but in a way, that's kind of like cheating. So much like anyone who's ever picked up some, some thin wedges of wood at Home Depot, if they were moving some construction pieces around, and a shim in that context is a thin element designed to just give a little bit of extra oomph to slide larger objects into position. In lock opening, a shim is a thin piece of usually metal that can slip its way into a very tiny crevice and in the same sense, get larger pieces to actuate and move around into other positions. Shimming would be an example of a category of attack we would call bypassing. Uh, many times, if I'm using a shim on a lock, that lock might have a keyhole, it might have pins, it might have a lot of things I could insert and attack picks into. But shimming is just saying, no, nah, I'm not gonna bother with that. I'm just gonna bypass that lock and just shim the release mechanism. Um, most of the time in the lock sport world, in the sport picking and hobbyist community, bypassing, while the practical implications are understood and appreciated, and while we will tell people some knowledge about it, do we say, here, here's how you make sure your locks can't be bypassed. It's not an endeavor that's engaged in with much uh, enthusiasm or competitive spirit, because there's no real skill involved in most bypassing attacks. In another example of bypassing, Deviant uses a metal bar that he can slide under a door and then once rotated upright, use to pull the door handle down from the inside, releasing that locked door. This, along with other tricks, are what he uses when performing a physical pen test of breaking into otherwise secure sites. These would all be roughly in that category of bypassing, which someone like me, for, for any listeners who don't know, I mean, my career is to help run a covert entry team where we evaluate spaces by breaking into those spaces. A bypassing is a great deal of what we do. 
a lot of this has to do with the fact that in our world, again, you can't introduce inordinate levels of friction to the average user. Good point. There's always this healthy tension between convenience and security. If you put too much into security, too much friction along the way, people will want to find a way to bypass it. So security always has to find the right balance. You would say, you know, what's the most secure room? Well, the most secure room would be a room with no portals in it, no doors, no windows, no air vents, just, you know, reinforced, single reinforced cinder block on all six sides. That's a very secure room. But if you want to get in that room, let's say you're storing gold bars in there, I guess you're getting what, a sledgehammer out? That's that's not practical. So you've got to you've got to add a door. And if you say, okay, well, this what if you have um, the old kind of joke from like someone living in New York in the 70s where they had uh, nine bolts, nine different dead locks all the way up and down their door. And in that funny scene where the person tries to get their pizza delivery and they got to unlock nine locks. Sure, it's very secure, but that's not practical. That introduces too much friction to the user. Sometimes good intentions produce unintended consequences. Take hotel rooms with adjoining doors. When you have family in the next room, that's convenient. But when there's a stranger, you'll want that door locked. But what if there's a fire? You'll need that second door to open in an emergency. So there are actually two doors. And if you have legitimate access to the adjoining room, you'll have a key that opens the first door. The second door, at least from the inside, must remain unlocked at all times to allow egress in the case of an emergency. Knowing this, Deviant says he can slide a metal bar under the first door to pop it open, then access the neighboring room via the second door. I don't think hotels, following regulations, intended it to be quite that easy. And we can carry this down out of the realm of fiction on TV to just something like, if I need to make sure people can enter and exit my space, if I'm a commercial building, well, I can't have a bunch of thumb-turned deadbolts all over the place on the interior of the door? What if someone's not tall enough to reach? What if a little kid needs to get out in an emergency? What if someone is enfeebled? What if someone doesn't have good tactile grip function with their hands? For regulatory reasons, some doors are simply designed to open the way they do. For example, in an office building, you have to accommodate the egress of a large number of people from the building in the case of a fire or other emergency. They can't be blocked by deadbolts or access cards when exiting. Unfortunately, this also creates opportunities for someone like Deviant to break in. We, in fact, have municipal building codes. We have NFPA. We have ADA compliance. So many buildings, particularly commercial buildings, the interior lock side is not that challenging at all for purposes of egress. If I have a tool that can reach through, as you've alluded to, reach through the door, Maybe not through the door like I'm a ghost reaching through like Casper, but what if I can reach through the little gap at the bottom of the door with a very skinny tool or over the top of the door through that, that very thin crack? And then I can manipulate the inside handle. Well, by code, that inside handle will allow that door to unlock and open very quickly. Very little, very little dexterity is needed. Less than five pounds of pressure is needed. This is all in code documents. And if I have tools that can do that, which yes, of course we do, that gets us in. To counteract this, designers of really secure facilities have started putting in ways to frustrate any potential attacker. So there are ways to shroud or recess that handle uh, so that it's still 
code compliant, anyone on the inside is able to, you know, to get themselves out in the event of emergency. But if I'm reaching through, I get frustrated after a minute or two and I break out my little underdoor camera and I go, what did they do to this installation? Oh my goodness, this is going to be a pain. So we've regulated that the interior doors must allow for egress at all times. Then why not also regulate that the handles have to be shielded or recessed as well? So I would say normalizing them, normalizing these solutions, both by raising awareness, first of all, because how often do we talk about this? And the other thing is normalizing the aesthetics. Aesthetics are a really, really big sticking point. It's true. People sometimes unwillingly give up degrees of security just for the sake of convenience. And sometimes they do so just for the aesthetics. In fact, one of the famous examples we give, if you're ever out in the sort of the Silicon Valley area, the Bay Area, where the climate is mild and buildings love to have a very slick presentation. If I describe for you a design element known as the frameless glass door, this is a glass door where it's literally, there is no metal mullion or, or edge to this door. It's just two big panes of glass with beautifully, usually brushed steel kind of handle hardware. Uh, it looks great. And you can do that if you don't have harsh winters and hot, you know, wet summers. But you can't have glass crashing into glass. There's always going to be that sort of quarter inch or even half inch of gap. And no one thinks about the fact that it looks wonderful, but it allows us to get our bypass tools in there every day of the week and twice on Sunday. So uh, changing what people's mindset is in terms of the aesthetic look they desire, that's a harder hurdle to overcome. Convenience can compromise security in other ways. We have, for example, in our smartphones, some of the best photo technology to date. The average smartphone today can capture a high-resolution image of a key, even a key in someone's hand in a photo on Instagram. You can use that high-resolution photo to recreate the physical key. Perhaps you've seen the kiosks in the grocery stores that offer to make a duplicate key. They take a photo photo duplication of keys, which many people did not believe was feasible until a number of firms started making it part of their business model, uh, probably the largest of which in this country is the service KeyMe. And absolutely, you can snap a photo of your key, send it to this service, and they will mail you a duplicate, you know, right through the post. So it is very, very possible to do what's called optical duplication or optical key decoding and do it with very imperfect images. In fact, I believe it was students at UC San Diego years ago that demonstrated a, a key a key ring on a table at a great distance away, if photographed through kind of a telescopic lens that they had put together, not the greatest picture, not the perfect clarity, but it gave them enough data to mathematically determine, oh, here's what those key values are, we can generate those keys, and they worked. Cover up those keys, don't put them online, don't tweet them. Unfortunately, there remains a stigma around lockpicking. For example, breaking and entering without permission is clearly illegal. But that's a distinction, without permission. If you only pick locks that you own, then really, what's the harm in cracking the code? I think the greatest thing that everyone who is not in the hacker world or in the security world would do well to understand is that there are forces and values beneath the surface that are different sometimes from the mainstream public's view of the situation and the landscape. That is to say, A, 
someone who has an interest in locks and lock picking can absolutely have that interest in a non-criminal way. Just like, again, to return to our martial arts analogy, not everyone who goes and learns, uh, you know, Krav Maga is doing so because they want to hurt people. Plenty of them don't even expect that anyone will try to hurt them. Plenty of people just want to have a challenging endeavor for personal betterment. Everyone who you see with lockpicks isn't trying them out because they want to be a criminal. Some people just like a puzzle. That's how the hacker brain works. Deviant's second point is that hackers too often see themselves as the smartest people in the room. And that might be the case. But the other people in the room don't necessarily want to hear that. To get them or anyone to make change, you have to work with people. That means listening to the other side of the story. There's always an other side to every story. When you see problems in the world with locks and security systems, try to not address them with a scoffing voice. Uh, my rule of life is in general, if I'm ever giving someone guidance or advice and the word just comes out of my mouth, I'm probably missing some piece of the equation. You know, oh, your, your car ran out of gas. Well, you just got to fill it up. OK, well, the person probably knew there's a, what prevented them from filling up their car with gas. Did they not have the money to? Was there no gas station? Is the gas pump not compatible with their car somehow? So telling someone, oh, you, your building's got bad security. Well, you got to just do this. And you're, that person is invariably going to roll their eyes and say, yeah, well, you know, we have guests in our building who aren't ambulatory. So that's not going to work at all. You know, or we have a building that happens to need a lot of sunlight. This is a botany lab. Did you not notice that? We can't just take the windows out. Thank you for that suggestion, though. I, you think we would have thought of that? So, yeah, don't assume everyone's a criminal and get the word just out of your suggestions are my two uh, big takeaways. Lockpicking, then, is not too different from any other form of hacking. If anything, it's much more tangible. You can both hear and feel the lock being opened. Also, the fundamentals of lockpicking your basic $10 combination lock aren't too hard to pick up and apply to a wide variety of other locks as well. Lockpicking your own locks for sport for the challenge really should not be ostracized, and it might come in handy when you least expect it. And while we continue to improve the safety of our office buildings through better egress, we should also be adding more security by addressing the recessed door handles and the like. I think we've only begun to scratch the surface of lockpicking. In the meantime, though, I still have my bag of combination locks to puzzle out. I want to thank Deviant Olam for sharing his expertise. You can follow him on Twitter at Deviant Olam, or you can find out more about this subject with lockpicking content available for free on the tool website. Hey, before you go, remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. This podcast is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain your friendly, turning tool, and rake-pick-enabled Robert Famosi.